It's really good to be together today. Welcome. Glad to have you here with us. A couple of weeks ago, I was on my computer and I had a notification that came through via Facebook. And so I stopped for a moment and I um, went to the notification and I noticed that it came from someone who I actually knew. But there was a curious question in the detail of the message that came through. Uh, It was a simple question. It said, hey, is this you in the video? Now, normally I'm pretty astute when it comes to things like that. I'm pretty strict on myself. And so I thought, I'm not going to get caught out here. So I'm going to actually look at the fine print and see if this is just something that's, that's coming through that I don't need to look at. And there was a particular word or phrase in there that made me think that actually there was a, a second connection. So not only did I know the person it came from, but also there was something in the, the actual video title that made me think, well, maybe I am actually in that video. So uh, against my best interests and wisdom, I clicked on it. Is this you in the video? And then all hell broke loose on my computer. I mean, there were signals coming up. Microsoft was sending out all these different messages coming through that nine of my passwords had been compromised and I went into absolute meltdown. The first thing I did was I erased and deleted. That wasn't a video at all, duh. And then uh, when I actually erased that, I started to go into my email passwords then and see which ones had actually been compromised. And so I panicked even further. I called up my bank and actually put a hold on all of my credit cards And uh, then I actually called up a computer technician, so I went hunting for some so I could find someone that they could erase any particular viruses or Trojan horses or battleships or castles or whatever they call them. And, uh, And then, you know, to top it off, the worst thing of all is that my kids turn to me and they say, Dad, scammers exist because of people like you. I mean, they make their money off people like you. And so... That just made me feel a whole lot worse. So after a week of waiting for my computer and having my credit card details put on hold, I got my computer back. And if you had have asked me, Troy, how did you feel about this experience? I would tell you, I feel like a total big fail. A total big fail. This is not coming up here at all. Even though there it is, there we've got it going. A total big fail. Someone else failed just a second ago, but I won't point it out to you. However, (laughs) apparently it was me. (laughs) But what happens if the stakes are a little bit higher? What happens if there's a fail in our lives and it doesn't relate to a computer and it's not so easily erased if you give it to a technician that it can just sort of delete a virus or check that there's other things that need to be attended to? What about if it's in a relationship? You say those words and they're quite cutting and it hurts and it fractures a relationship and it's not so easily repaired. What about if it's a particular habit that you find yourself getting caught up in that drags you into the shadows and you thought that that old life had gone and the new life had come but it doesn't sort of delete or isn't erased so easily and you find yourself getting enticed back into things again that you know aren't good for you, that you know that they're not godly, but you seem to be all so easily just drawn back into them. Or maybe it's a pattern you're falling into. You started to lie about a certain thing to cover your tracks and you find yourself having to lie some more in order to cover those tracks as well. And you find yourself looking over your shoulder 
never knowing when you're going to get caught out. I mean, is there a time in which God actually says, you've failed so much that I'm just going to cut the tether here and you no longer belong to me? Or I wonder if you're in the habit of just sweeping things under the carpet, but you realize when you look at the carpet that the the bulge has become so large right now that it kind of is obvious, not only to you, but to other people around you. I mean, is there a time in which God says, enough is enough? Is there a time in which the sweeping under the carpet, you're finding yourself getting caught up, if you like, in a sense of guilt and shame such that you can't just sweep it under the carpet anymore? And you kind of find yourself dragging it around with you. Over the past number of weeks, we've been looking at this whole idea of what does it mean to cultivate a life after Jesus, the fully human one? I mean, what is it like to let God's life, his new life, come into your life such that it transforms you from the inside out? There's one part of the tree that we haven't attended to yet, and that's the upper limbs. Some of you might be asking, what are these words up here? Well, have a look at this picture right now. There's these words in the upper limb that simply say purifying. I want to suggest to you that part of the life of following Jesus involves at times becoming washed and purified and cleansed from the inside out afresh so that God's fully human life might flow through you. And to attend to that, I want to raise... And bring to your attention two particular critical conversations that Jesus had with his right-hand man, Peter. I mean, Peter's name, Petra, means the rock. Simultaneously, Peter's greatest strength, we'll discover, is also his greatest weakness. I mean, Peter had a boldness and he had a veracity and he had a strength and he would step out and do things that were spectacular. But almost in the same breath as he was exhaling, his greatest height and feet could also be his greatest undoing and his single most greatest low as well. And that's what we discover about Peter. So what I want to attend today is talk about this whole idea of God's purifying of a follower of Jesus' life from the inside out through looking in the lens of two critical conversations that Jesus has with Peter. One of them's in an upper room and the other one's in a leisurely stroll along a beach. But before I do, I'd just like to pause right now and pray and simply ask that God might speak to us wherever we are about this most important thing. Father, I ask that you might speak to us today. Jesus, I pray that as we talk about this particular aspect of following you, that for those who are far away who are just checking you out, that they might come to see your loving kindness and your goodness. And I pray and I also ask that for wherever we are, that whatever things might be attentive to us that you want to raise with us this morning, we just give you permission to do so now. Might you meet with us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible there or you want to follow on a a phone app, why don't you turn to John chapter 13. That is John chapter 13. The first critical conversation that, that Jesus has with Peter is in an upper room. 
And it's on the night before he's going to be betrayed and his disciples are going to desert him and he's going to be crucified that he gathers with them in an upper room. And in that upper room, he has a critical conversation with Peter. And this is how it goes. It was just before Passover festival. The Passover festival was that great festival of liberation. It was the moment in Israel's history where they recalled and reflected and remembered every year the liberation and the freedom that the Israelites had from Egypt all those centuries before, where God had delivered them through the leadership of Moses from the tyranny of, and the oppression of slavery in Egypt. And so here they were gathered together again in that upper room, in that sacred place to remember and celebrate that, that festival of freedom. And it goes on and says this, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And then it goes on and says this, he had always loved his own people in the world and now he was going to love them again right through to the very end. It was supper time and the devil had already put the idea of betraying him into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so we have this intimate setting where the disciples are gathered and Judas as well is one of the disciples. The only thing we know about Judas in particular here is that he was the treasurer. He was the one who used to look after all of the finances. And it was known that there were times in which he would pilfer some of the money for his own gain. And we learn and we discover that here in this sacred moment, in this intimate setting, that if you like, the, the evil one, the devil had come and actually leveraged something in Judas's life so that he realized or decided in that moment that he was going to betray Jesus. And so at the end of that supper, it says that Jesus, he stood up and he took off his outer garment and he wrapped it around his waist. And slowly but surely, he took a bowl of water and he began to move around the outside of the disciples. In that setting, they would have been leaning inwards, like on their elbow, eating a meal and having food together. And their feet would be positioned outwardly. So I imagine Jesus, he has wrapped his outer garment around himself. He has taken a bowl of water and he begins to slowly kneel down beside their feet and wash them. Slowly he moves around the room until he gets to Peter. And this is the exchange that happens. It says this. Master said, Peter, what's this? You washing my feet? You see, in this very moment... Peter understood that he was the person that was going to be, we'll just keep that up. What we understood in this very moment was that Peter was anticipating that Jesus was coming around towards him. And he knew that this particular foot washing ceremony was not just a ceremony, this was the task, if you like, of a servant, of a slave. And so when he actually came to Jesus, came to Peter, his first response and his first intimation was for Peter to turn to Jesus and to say, you are not going to wash my feet because that is the, the role of a servant, of a slave. And I will not have you wash my feet. If anything, I will wash your feet. And so the interchange goes like this. Jesus said to Peter, you don't understand yet what I'm doing, but you'll know afterwards. Well, in this moment, Peter doubles down and uh, his greatest strength also becomes simultaneously his greatest weakness. 
For he doubles down and he says to Jesus these words, I'm not going to have you washing my feet, said Peter, never. To which Jesus responds to Peter, if you like, and he goes down a layer lower in the conversation and he responds and he says this, Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't belong to me. Well, at that moment, Peter reacts and he says these words. All right, then, Master, said Simon Peter, but not only my feet, but you can wash my hands and you can wash my head as well. You could see, if you like, the disciples having a little chuckle moment here and Jesus, you know, he's responding to this with a wry smile on his face because Peter's trying to say to him, Jesus, I am so into you. I so believe that you are the Messiah, that you are the Son of God, you are the one who has come and been sent for us to liberate us and set us free that if, if belonging to you means getting my feet washed, then I tell you what, I want you to take that bowl of water and I want to you to tip it on the top of my head so it covers all of me. I am so into you. <laughs> and then if you like, Jesus takes these words, these faux pas of Peter, he's just responses, his reactions. And he drills down a layer lower and he says these words. He says, Peter, someone who has washed doesn't need to wash again except for their feet. You see, they're clean all over, and you are clean, but not all of you. And he was referring to Judas. In this moment, I think Jesus was trying to relay to Peter a powerful truth. See, he wanted to say to Peter, you belong to me because you believe in me. And I know that. And because you believe in me, the work I'm going to do on the cross is going to be fully effective for you. In fact, the powers of death that I'm going to defeat, the power of sin that I'm going to destroy, the power of the devil and, and the unseen world is going to bend at my knee. And I want you to know that anyone who believes in me and for you that believes in me, I want you to know that you are washed and therefore you belong to me. But there are times in our lives when you will trip up and you will stumble and you will fall. And in those times, you need to be purified and washed clean again. If you like, you need to have your feet washed. Over the past number of weeks, we've been exploring what does it look like when someone opens up their life to God and allows Jesus to come in and take leadership in their life. We've had a diagram that we've worked through. It says when someone comes to know Jesus, he places his spirit in their very heart and he renews them from the inside out. And then as someone's walking with Jesus, they're sinking their roots down into him and they're drawing upon his energy and his power to make the changes in their life. There are old things that no longer belong and there are new things that he wants to have in store for them that are bringing new fresh life into them. And then that's supposed to give birth to new fruit on the upper surface, if you like, in the external parts of someone's life. If you like, there's a part of participating with God and a part of pruning certain aspects of our life that God wants to do. And it's not all just him doing his work, but it requires our effort as well. It's almost as like you let Jesus into your life and he comes into your home and he does some spring cleaning 
and he does some interior redesigning. If you like, that's the image of Jesus coming in and there's this freshness and this newness of life that seems to be breaking forth. But with that newness of life, you quickly realize that the old life still has a certain amount of attachment. And even though it's been defeated, it sort of rears its ugly head because there's new framing to be done. Jesus might come to a particular room where there's an old habit of way of thinking and believing about things that needs some attention. And quite frankly, that room has become so familiar to you that you want to say to Jesus, I've got this one, you don't need to come in, I'll deal with this one myself. But it's an old lie that keeps coming back and informing you and shaping your behavior like Judy was talking about. I remember when I was growing up, there was a powerful truth that I used to believe and it had to do with the schoolyard. And I remember saying, I don't care if they don't like me, but I'll make them respect me. Well, that was a lie because I did want them to like me too. And so the problem with that kind of thinking is you can grow up with this idea of I need to do things in order to be approved by other people. But that doesn't work with God. You see, when you come to God, it doesn't come on anything with your terms. He takes you where you are. He loves you of infinite worth. Just You're in need of great repair. And he receives you just as who you are. But he wants to transform and change you from the inside out. So there'll be times in which you'll come to those particular doors and he'll come knocking. Troy, there's some old patterns of belief that need to change. And then there might be an old pattern of behavior. That thing that wants to drag you into the shadows and have you to continue to just participate, if you like, in an old way of doing. Maybe it's to do with the way in which you use your mouth and your words. Or perhaps the way in which you react and you respond to people. Maybe an old habit, there's, there's a lie or there's some way of deceiving or some way of covering things up that makes you look good in other people's eyes. And Jesus comes to those doors and he wants to do some attending. You see, what I've discovered over the years is that not only does the life with God require a cultivation from within, from his power and my efforts, but when he draws to attention the things that need pruning, calling me into places that he wants me to participate in, that there are times in which I will fail. There are times in which through either my weakness or willfulness or that I just might wander, I find myself steering a course that's away from God and allowing other sins to creep in, old behaviors and patterns that no longer have a place. And it's in those times I need to receive a purifying or, as the image says, a washing and a purifying and a cleansing. See, if there's three things I've discovered about sin over the years is that it operates like this. Firstly, this. Sin stains. We'll just keep these up, Joel. See, this idea of sin staining as such is that when I do things that fall short of who God is, there's a certain sense in which it makes a stain. Maybe there's a guilt that I carry or a shame that covers and travels with me. This sense in which... Not only guilt says that I have done wrong, but, but if you like, shame says I am wrong. And those things can, if you like, leave a stain on our lives. I mean, Jesus said these words. He said, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you. 
He says things like envy and jealousy and greed and, and, and lust and anger. These are the things that come from inside of us and they come out and they're the things that make us unclean. If you like, they leave a stain. Over the course of my years, I've had a number of different people who have come to me and they've talked about the idea of the idea of different things that are happening in their life that they need to actually just get rid of. I think it's because there's a sense in them in which they realize they don't want to carry some of these stains or this guilt or this shame with them. And so as a result of that, what they do is that they come and they want to offload it. I think that's the way how it works, is that we want to share some of our guilt, some of our shame, so we don't carry it alone. And the truth of sin is that it stains. This passage here that John goes on to write, he says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think what he's trying to say is that there are times in our lives in which we fall short and stumble. We need to come to Jesus, if you like, and say, will you wash my feet afresh? And that he wipes it clean. Second thing I've learned about sin, if you like, is that sin hardens. Sin is like a coronary heart disease. It hardens our arteries so that the life of Jesus doesn't shine or work through us as clearly and as openly as it should. I remember a person coming to me one time and I knew him as a friend. He was a colleague. And we would spend time exchanging stories about what's happening in our lives and in ministry. A certain relationship I found that he was starting to move into and towards. And over the years and, and well, the months and the years, it, it moved into a space that wasn't healthy. And I remember meeting with him one day and saying to him at the course of the end of, of a number of different months and years of progressively moving towards an unhealthy relationship, where I said to him, mate, you don't understand but all ministry aspects that you've got and you've been having working in your life are no longer available to you. You have disqualified yourself in this season because of the relationship that you have entered into. But I tell you this, mate, if you do not stop, the next thing will be your marriage and then it will be your family. And because his heart had been hardened over time, he could not pull back and hear the voice of God through even his closest friends. I think that's why it says, encourage each other every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, that's what it does. Sin isn't just the sum total of the things that I might do wrong, codes that I break. It's this attitude inside of us that says, I want to rule myself, I want to please myself, I want to serve myself, God. And when we dig our heels in and when we push that deep, what happens over time is that we become increasingly hardened to the voice of God. And thirdly, the, last, the third thing I've discovered about the nature of sin is that it creates footholds, it creates crevices, it creates cracks in our lives where the, the evil one, where the devil himself can come and take hold. And if you like, in those footholds, he can leverage those moments and entice you back into the darkness, into the shadows, to get caught up in old ways and old patterns that shouldn't, and they don't belong anymore in the life of God, but because he's dragged you there and in a moment of weakness or willfulness or just wandering, 
drags you into that space and as soon as he catches you there, he turns and points to you and he says, see, how could God possibly forgive you? How could God possibly love you when you do something like this? And he accuses you. And so I think that's why the, the, the biblical writer says this, and don't, let, uh, don't, let, don't sin by letting anger control you. And don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. It mightn't just be anger. It might be something else. Something else that you know isn't part of the life of God, but it seems as though because you've hardened and you haven't had your heart cleaned and washed, if you like, it gives a foothold for the devil himself to take hold of. That's what happened to Judas, tragically. There was a foothold that hadn't been dealt with, and as a result of that, there hadn't been a washing. There'd been a hardening. And his world was about to come crashing down. Well, at the end of that meal, after the end of that critical conversation, Jesus says, by the way, someone here is going to betray me, and in a few hours' time, you're all going to desert me and run away. Well, they, they all start asking, Jesus, who is it that's going to betray you? And then all the voices get louder and they say, we will not desert you. We will not leave you. And guess who has the loudest voice? Peter. Peter stridently stands up and he declares, Jesus, I will even die for you. And Jesus looks back at him and says, really, Peter, will you die for me? I want you to know this. But by the time that the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you would have denied me three times. And so he leaves the room and they go to a garden and the soldiers come. And, and Peter, he pulls his sword and he cuts off the ears of one of the high priest's servants. Jesus stops him. And says, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. That is not my way. And he allows them to take him. And Peter follows from a distance. And he enters into the courtroom of the, if, if you like, the outer sanctum of, of the high priest's house. And there he can listen into and, and watch from a distance the trial that's proceeding. And there by the fire he warms his hands. And surely... A servant girl says, weren't you one of his disciples? And Peter denies it. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then someone else calls out, weren't you a follower of his? And, and, and Peter caught up in the fear and the darkness of the moment. He, he responds, I, I don't know who you're talking about. And finally, someone says, as Peter's warming his hand by the fire, Surely you're one of the Galileans who's been following this man Jesus is on trial right now. And he says, in that moment, Peter cracks. And he stands up and he starts cursing and swearing. He says, I tell you the truth, I don't even know this man. And in that very moment, it says the rooster crows. And Peter looks towards Jesus and it says, Jesus looks straight at him. And in that very moment, Peter realizes that he has denied his master and his world comes crashing around him. It says he runs away and he weeps bitterly. Some weeks later, Jesus has risen to new life. The disciples are up in North Galilee and they're waiting their instructions. And so Peter goes out and he says, well, whilst we're waiting our instructions, 
How about we go fishing? They've been out fishing all night and they come back in and they're in the, if you like, in just in the, the shallow waters and they have not caught any fish at all. And in the wee hours of the morning, there's someone who's standing on the, the side of the Sea of Galilee and he calls out, hey, if you just throw your nets down to the right-hand side, I'm sure you'll grab a catch. And so Peter, he takes his nets and he throws them down and there's this big school of fish that swims in. And the penny drops for John first. He turns to Peter and he says, it's the master. Well, this time Peter, he jumps out of the boat. He wraps his own clothes around him now. He can't wait to get to Jesus. So he walks towards him in the water. And there they are sitting together on the beach. And Peter, once again, is warming his hands by the fire. And somewhere in the course of those events, Jesus must turn to him and say, Peter, Let's go for a walk on the beach. And there they are, the two of them. They're walking together on the beach. And Jesus is about to do something for Peter that although it's quite painful, is a powerful healing moment. Because he knows that if this wound is left unattended, it will just continue to weep. There will be a leverage moment where the devil comes and says, see what you've done. You are disqualified from any service because of the way in which you have failed most spectacularly your master. Or there might be a hardening of the heart. He's done it once. He might do it again. Or there's just that weeping of guilt and shame that continues. And Jesus wants to attend the wound. Sometimes the wounds need lancing. Before there is healing. And so as they're walking along the beach, Jesus has a second intimate conversation with Peter. And as they're strolling, I can just imagine the toing and froing. Jesus turns and asks Peter this question Peter, do you love me? Oh, that must have hurt. You know, some parents, they'll look at their children and all they have to do is give them a look and the the bottom lip quivers. (laughs) Whilst others are really defined, I can imagine and see Peter here. Just in that one question, Jesus is putting his finger on the wound. You see, Jesus doesn't come to him and say, Peter, what on earth were you thinking? Peter, in the moment which I needed you most, you let me down and you failed me. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He just comes quietly and steadily and he asks a probing, honest, hard question. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. Well, then I want you to tend my lambs. They walk some more and Jesus asks the same question again. Peter, do you love me? He doesn't want to know why he failed him. He doesn't want to know his moment of weakness. He doesn't explore that. He just wants to ask him a second time, probingly, do you love me? To which he turns and he says, you know I love you, Jesus. Well then, feed my sheep. So they stroll some more and Jesus comes and says to Peter a third time. And he knows this will hurt. Peter, do you love me? It says in that moment, Peter is just overcome because 
Jesus has just very firmly but tenderly put his thumb on the most painful of wounds because he needs to lance it. And Peter turns to him because he's reminded of the three denials, the third question now that is being asked, do you love me? And he says, Master, you know all things, you know I love you. And then Jesus turns to him and then says, well then, Peter, I want you to tend my sheep. You see, Jesus picks him up and puts him into his service. And in that moment... Peter just had his feet washed afresh. I wonder how God might be speaking to you today. Have you become so familiar with an old habit of the old life that no longer fits in God's that you need some washing? Because if you don't attend and do some washing and some confessing to him or some confessing to someone else, if you carry that alone, you'll carry the stain of guilt and shame and it will harbour And it can harden. And so the most kind thing that Jesus might do for you this morning is come to you and ask you that simple question. Do you love me? That's all I want to know. Because if you love me, you belong to me. But sometimes we just need our feet washed. I wonder if you have cultivated a hardness of your heart and you're not realizing it. But in this moment, there needs to be a purifying and a softening. And if you don't, there'll be a leverage moment for the evil one himself. It mightn't be today, but it could be next week or next month or next year. And he's calling you and asking you again the most important question. Do you love me? Because if you can say, yes, I do, then everything else falls into place from there. And so I wonder how God might be speaking to you today. Because in my life and my experience, I realize there's always a rooster crowing. And Jesus lovingly has provided us with an understanding that cultivating the life after him doesn't mean that I've got everything figured out and perfect, but it means allowing him into the access of my life so that when he does some pruning and I do some participating and through a moment of weakness or willfulness or I just I wonder, there's times in which we need to have our feet washed. We need to experience his purifying. So I'm going to pray right now and then I'm going to leave a moment for a song to be played and what I'd like you to do is ask God, is there something in my inner life that I need to bring to you? A stain that I'm carrying that I want and seek your forgiveness for? A hardening where you know needs to be softening? A leverage moment, a crevice that has emerged that you need to do some hard working with today? A power needs to be broken over your life so that you can walk in a newness and freedom of life. Then I would invite you to respond and to act how God prompts you in these moments now. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite God's Holy Spirit to meet with us today so that we might experience his cleansing and his purifying and walk in the liberty that he gives. Father God, right here today, wherever people are watching from, I ask that you might break a power over their lives, 
and give them a freedom for those people who have felt as though they've been dragged into a corner into the shadows and they're feeling like they're overcome and defeated. I pray that you might give them the power by the the power of your spirit to break that in their lives so that there might be a freedom and a liberty just like that Passover festival, a new freedom and a liberty in their lives and I ask it for them now. Father, I pray for those who have have experienced a sense of a hardening and a pushing you away and they haven't seen it, they haven't known it, but now they sense it. Now I ask, Father, that you would bring a softness to them as they come and open up their heart to you, that they might confess that and bring that to you and that you might bring a freshness, a new breath of the Spirit that would give them a softening. And Father, for those that are carrying a a sense of a stain, a, a guilt or a shame, I pray and I ask, that they may bring that to you now and they may confess that. And that will be a habit and a work in their life and that will be washed clean so that they cannot be accused, that they will walk in a freedom and a forgiveness that only you give because your cross is sufficient for all things. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.